Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. Brought to you by Carnegie China, hosted by Paul Hanley. Welcome, everyone, to the fifth panel of the Carnegie Global Dialogue series for 2021-2022. My name is Paul Hanley, and I'm the director of Carnegie China. I'm joining you from Singapore, where I'm serving as a visiting fellow at the East Asian Institute at the National University of Singapore. And I'm delighted today to be joined by colleagues and friends, Amr Hamzawi, uh, who is coming in from the United States. Uh, Bilahari Kozakin here in Singapore, uh, and Dr. Ho Wenping uh, calling in from uh, Beijing. And we're going to discuss today China's growing involvement in the Middle East. This is the 10th year of our Carnegie Global Dialogue. We've hosted it uh, at Carnegie China. Um, it involves a series of panel discussions which examine China's evolving foreign policy and international role from the perspectives of Carnegie scholars at each of our global centers and international experts from across the globe. And today uh, we're going to be discussing China Middle East and we've got a terrific panel to discuss these issues and let me briefly uh, introduce them and then dive right into our discussion. From Carnegie, uh, my colleague Amar Hamzawi, the director of the Carnegie Middle East program. Amar returned recently to the Carnegie Endowment uh, he previously served uh, with the Carnegie Endowment uh, between 2005 and 2010 as a senior associate in Washington, D.C., but he was also research director in our center, uh, Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut. Amr left Carnegie to uh, run for political office in Egypt, where he was successful and served as a member of the Egyptian parliament. He's also a former member of the Egyptian National Council for Human Rights, He's taught as a professor in a number of universities, uh, Cairo University, American University in Cairo. Uh, and, and over the last several years, he's been teaching at Stanford, where he's calling in from today, I believe, at least near Stanford. We're glad to welcome Amr back to Carnegie. This time, of course, he's taking the helm of leadership over the Middle East program. Amr, thanks for joining us today, especially so early your time. Um, Bilahari Kozakin. Uh, probably needs no introduction to people who are watching this the, the dialogue. Um, he's joining us as the chairman of the Middle East Institute at National University of Singapore. Bill Ahari has had an illustrious diplomatic and academic career. While in the foreign ministry, uh, he served in numerous capacities, including Singapore's ambassador to Russia, permanent representative from Singapore to the United Nations in New York, and ultimately served as the permanent secretary of Singapore's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Following his retirement, uh, he stayed on to serve as ambassador at large until 2018. And today he's heading up the Middle East, Middle East Institute. And we're really delighted, Bill Ahari, to have you join us today. So thank you. Thank you. And last but not least uh, is our friend, Dr. Hu Wenping, who joins us today and has joined us uh, several times in the past. Um, she is a professor and research, senior research fellow uh, at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. She began her research and teaching career uh, at CAS in 1989. She has served as a visiting scholar in a number of institutions around the world, including Yale, London University, Nordic Africa Institute in Sweden, BRICS Policy Center in Rio de Janeiro, just to name a few. She is the Senior Research Fellow also at the Chahar Institute uh, and Associate Researcher in the Center for Chinese Studies of Stellenbosch University in South Africa. Uh, formerly, uh, Dr. He served as a council member of the World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council of the Future of Africa. Wenping, it's uh, great to have you back. Nice to see you. Thanks for joining us from Beijing. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Before we kick off our substantive discussion, just a couple of quick points. We wanna allow the audience uh, that's watching this live to be able to ask questions. And so to do that, use the chat function on YouTube. Second, we'll post a recording of this discussion as an episode of our China in the World podcast, which you'll be able to find on all major podcast streaming platforms. So with that, uh, let's kick off our discussion. 
As I mentioned, our topic today is focusing on recent developments and the future of China's Middle East relations, as well as implications of these evolving dynamics on geopolitics. Uh, China's economic and diplomatic stakes in the Middle East have grown in recent years as China becomes an increasingly global power uh, with global interests and global influence. China is now the largest foreign investor uh, in and uh, trading partner with the Middle East. One third of China's energy imports come from the Gulf Cooperation Council with the largest portion from Saudi Arabia. Chinese companies buy one sixth of GCC oil exports. They buy one fifth of Iran's and half of Iraq's. Increasingly, many countries in the Middle East welcome the economic and diplomatic benefits that a partnership with China can provide. Earlier this year in January, foreign ministers of seven Middle East countries visited China, including members of the GCC like Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Oman, as well as other countries like Turkey, Syria, and Morocco. The GCC countries continued ongoing discussions on the China GCC free trade agreement. Syria and Morocco signed two new MOUs for China's Belt and Road. Uh, and Turkey and China emphasized the two sides growing technological cooperation. In broad terms, it appears as the United States seeks to reduce its strategic footprint in the Middle East, China looks to be stepping up its engagement in the region. Now, the recent outbreak of war in Ukraine portends further shifts in regional dynamics as countries in the region begin to navigate their own increasingly complex relations with Russia, with China, and the United States. And so I thought we would kick off our discussion here with the Ukraine crisis and the implications on Middle East geopolitics. Uh, as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, many countries in the Middle East have been forced to pursue a difficult balancing act with respect to their ties to Russia, China, and the US. Uh, one day after the invasion, Kuwait and Turkey were the only two countries in the region to initially sign a letter at the UN condemning Russia's invasion. Subsequently, in early March, other, many other countries in the regions did vote to condemn Russia, uh, Jordan, Saudi, Egypt, the UAE, Israel, Oman, uh, the U.S., for its part, of course, has led the charge with NATO allies in condemning Russia's invasion. There has been some frictions between the U.S. and several countries in the region, notably Saudi Crown Prince, MBS, and UAE, uh, MBZ, recently snubbed calls from President Biden in early March, yet they reached out, uh, both reached out to Russian President uh, Putin. So the straddling that many countries in the Middle East are undertaking with respect to the war in Ukraine resembles a similar balancing act uh, that China has tried to pursue, uh, highlighting the potential for increasing diplomatic alignment with China, perhaps, and countries in the region. So I wanna start by giving each of you a chance to offer your own assessments. How do you see countries in the Middle East responding to the war in Ukraine? And how is this impacting their relations with China and the US. And let me start, Amr, with you, if I could. Sure, thank you so much, Paul. And it's a pleasure to join you and my colleagues in Singapore and China. Let me, let me uh, highlight a couple of points with regard to how countries in the Middle East have been responding to the Ukraine, to the Russian war on Ukraine, and how the response um, coming out of the Middle East um, does represent to, to an extent um, a similar response to what we um, uh, are seeing in China. The first point I would like to highlight is the fact that Middle Eastern countries, and here I'm including Israel as well, so not only Arab countries, but the reference is to uh, traditional allies of the United States in the Middle East. Uh, that group includes Israel, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, prominently in the GCC uh, countries, as well as Egypt, as well as Morocco. Um, traditional allies of the U.S. have responded uh, to the Russian war on Ukraine in a manner, as you um, were just outlining, Paul, in, 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 in a manner which you could describe as hedging their bets. They did not want to condemn uh, Russia because their military and trade ties with Russia 
have been on the rise in recent years since the Arab uprisings in 2011, increasingly in the last years with the U.S. Um, decreasing its involvement in the region in, in, in many different ways. So in a way, they have attempted to hedge their bets, avoided condemning Russia. They condemned Russia in the General Assembly of the United Nations. However, most foreign ministries um, uh, in the countries I'm referring to did put forward statements indicating their understanding of um, why Russia felt threatened and so on and so forth. It was a, a quite an interesting balancing act. So I, I believe the number one big point which we're seeing in the region is the reluctance of traditional allies of the U.S. to pursue what is the U.S. Um, uh, position regarding the Russian war on Ukraine, and what's not only the U.S., but the U.S. and the European position on the Russian war on Ukraine. Second point, in, 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 in looking around um, in the Middle East, the Chinese position has been very attractive for many countries, especially for Saudi Arabia, the United Arab um, Emirates, as well as Egypt, to the extent that their foreign ministries have been referencing the Chinese position as a position of neutrality, as a position of non-alignment, as a position of uh, peacekeeping uh, worldwide and trying to follow suit. So in a way, this is the first time in a big international crisis where the Chinese position is being pushed forward by Middle Eastern diplomacies as a position to, um, uh, to follow, as a position to aim for. Um, I believe recent visits between um, uh, Chinese and Arab Middle Eastern officials have indicated this to a great extent as well. And I, I, I might extend uh, the reference here to countries which um, have traditionally kept very strong relations to China, Algeria, for example, in North Africa, Egypt traditionally um, with strong ties to China, increasingly um, uh, evolving trade and um, uh, military ties, and emerging military and strategic ties between the GCC countries, especially the UAE and Saudi Arabia and China. So for the first time in a big international crisis, the reference in the region is not to the US position, is not to the European position, but it's to a great extent to the Chinese position. And that includes Israel too, which for its own purposes, be it coordination with um, uh, with Russia in Syria or the fact um, um, the influence of the growing um, um, diplomatic ties between Russia and Israel, Israel as well has been shying away from following the American European position and referencing the Chinese position as an ideal position in a world of conflicts, in a world of um, uh, military escalation, that reference to neutrality, non-alignment, peacekeeping um, uh, objectives um, have been uh, key in the region. Finally, mm. I believe uh, Middle Eastern countries are looking um, uh, in, in times of economic and um, uh, trade-related uh, crises uh, to Chinese investment and to the Chinese growing Chinese uh, economic and trade role as an alternative. Um, the Russian war on Ukraine has created a situation of food insecurity in the region. Most Middle Eastern countries import wheat, as you know, they are big importers of wheat. Egypt imports 85% of its wheat um, domestic consumption from Russia and Ukraine. The same goes for most countries in the region. And the impacted food insecurity and economic and trade insecurity um, is pushing the region to look to China for help as well. It can, and that is sort of a point which I can highlight, highlight later. China con conceives its role in the region as a projection of its soft power to a great extent. And this is where trade and the economy come in, but as well as developing investment opportunities for, for the Chinese economy. So let me let me stop here. Thank you, Amr. Thank you very much. You put a lot on the table. Similar response to many countries in the in the region as China. You described it as sort of a hedging hedging policy, um, and the Chinese position has some attractiveness. Now, uh, Bill Ahari, of course, uh, you know Singapore came out with its own sanctions, first time in four decades, took a very strong position on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's about 40 countries together between the U.S., Europe, other countries in Asia that. You know, despite China calling them unilateral Western sanctions, these are not unilateral. They're not Western. Uh, there's, you know, at least 40 countries together. But it sounds from Amar that uh, the Middle East uh, may may have a different narrative, uh, which is similar to the Chinese narrative. How do you see this? 
Well, let me answer your question by putting the recent developments on Ukraine uh, in a broader perspective and a longer term perspective. Uh, I think this is, is best seen as part of a very initial response to a fundamental change in the strategic environment in, in the Middle East. And I can describe that best by perhaps comparing it to what happened in Asia 50 years ago, or more than 50 years ago. More than 50 years ago, as part of the process of, the process of correcting its mistake in Vietnam, the Vietnam War, the US moved from a position of direct intervention to that of an offshore balancer. And it has been quite consistent in that role for ever since. I believe something similar is happening in the Middle East as part of the US rectification of its mistakes in Iraq and in Afghanistan. Uh, the role of an offshore balancer and dealing with the offshore balancer is something that is very unfamiliar to countries in the Middle East. We in East Asia, we have had know, 50 years to get used, half a century to get used to it, and we know how to play this game. The Middle East is just starting. Uh, the role of offshore balancer is sometimes mistakenly depicted as a retreat or withdrawal. It is not that. It is taking a step back, but not withdrawing. The US Navy is still in Bahrain. The US Air Force is still in Qatar. US Patriot batteries engage incoming Houthi missiles in the UAE. F-22 Raptors have been deployed in the UAE. And the US has recently demonstrated it can reach out and kill terrorists when they locate them, <laughs> all right? Uh, but this is all unfamiliar. The role of an offshore balancer is unfamiliar to countries in the Middle East. Uh, at the risk of some oversimplification, most of the Gulf countries and Israel, the basic strategic posture is very simple since the Second World War. Look for the strongest country and cleave to it. Mm. Now, what do you do when the strongest country has taken a step back? Not retreating, but taking a step back. And that is the larger meaning of the Abraham Accords. The larger meaning of the Abraham Accords is, well, if you guys think that Iran is an existential threat, I don't think Iran is an existential threat to me, so you better get together and deal with it. <laughs> right? mm. And that process is just beginning. You see other little parts of this uh, falling into place, Turkey reaching out, to Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries, you see the most unsecret secret talks being conducted between Iran and uh, Saudi Arabia and UAE with the intermediation of Oman and Iraq. And you have all these things. Now, whether they are going to amount to anything uh, is still an open question. That is the broader context. But the fundamental issue for all these countries uh, remains this. Who is going to provide security on when the US has taken a step back? And there's no easy answer. Uh, for Israel, despite what uh, our colleague said, in the end, there is no choice but the US. And I rather suspect that the Gulf states will probably come to the same conclusion, but much, much, much more reluctantly. Hmm. Why do I say that? Who are the other major powers that could be the security provider? Russia? Well, we have seen Russian performance in the, U in, the, in the Ukraine. And I think Russia is at the limits of what it can do in the Middle East. China's footprint is growing in the Middle East, economic footprint, diplomatic footprint. And that is, there's nothing unusual about that. China is reaching out to become a global power and there's no reason that it should be not play some kind of role in the Middle East. But what kind of role? Mm. I don't think China is eager to play to replace the security provider role that the US has played for many decades in the Middle East. Mm. If I was Chinese, I wouldn't want to. You know, it has never ended well for any major power. Okay. So I think the Chinese would like as far as possible to keep their engagement diplomatic and economic, with an occasional weapon sale here and there and so on. 
But I think China also faces a fundamental dilemma in the Middle East. Right? Its, it's military footprint is bound to grow, at least its naval footprint. Because right now, the Middle East is still a very significant source of energy for China. But the energy roads from the Middle East to China are protected by whom? By the Fifth Fleet and Seventh Fleet. And that's an intolerable position to, uh, for any major power to have your uh, a vital commodity supply lines uh, you know, protected by your rival. You know, nobody will tolerate that. So you're bound, China is bound to increase its military, its naval footprint at least. Mm. in the Gulf and along the route back to China. But that's a, quite a different thing from becoming a security provider. Mm. Because China right now can, has in, is in the, in the enviable position of being simultaneously able to enjoy good relations with Israel, with Egypt, with Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states, and with Iran. Mm. Is this sustainable over the long run? Because I don't think the cleavages, the geopolitical and sectarian cleavages, that we see in the Middle East are going to go away anytime soon, despite this reaching out by Turkey and this quiet talks between Iran and Middle East, because the differences are fundamental. So sooner or later, uh, China is going to have to make some choices, particularly since it doesn't look, I mean, the outlook for the JCPOA, for example, a revival of it seems rather uncertain. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, and a JCPOA, don't, let's, say, let's say it is a, it is um, we, we, uh, something miraculous happens and we have a revived JCPOA. But that's a postponement of an Iran, a nuclear Iran, not a complete um, a foregoing of the nuclear option by Iran. Will Israel and Saudi Arabia and Egypt and indeed even Turkey tolerate this? That's a very open question. And if they don't tolerate it, then sooner or later, you are going to have a major conflict in the Middle East over this issue. And then it is going to be very difficult in the run-up to that conflict, and certainly during the conflict, for you to simultaneously have good relations with, with everything. So therefore, I don't take this initial hedging as an indication of anything but just what it is. Initial hedging, buying some time while you figure out these larger geopolitical movements. Uh, and of course, you know, in the case of Saudi Arabia and UAE, there is a large element of peak in their initial response. Don't forget these are absolute monarchies and they're used to getting their own way in everything. And they don't take kindly to being lectured on human rights. They don't take kindly to being pressured to kind of reduce oil production and so on. So mm -hmm. I, I think we should, it is premature to come to any long-term or major conclusions about what we see in these initial adjustments to the Ukraine war. I think the Ukraine war is unfortunately, alas, going to be a long war. It's not going to be over in a few days as Mr. Putin hoped, but it's going to be a very long drown out affair. And it has put China in a very awkward spot. How mm -hmm. China has been very careful in its response to the Ukraine war. Uh, mm -hmm. But I do not think China can ever break with Russia for one very simple reason. China has no strategic partner anywhere in the world except Russia with the same strategic weight that shares its discomfort with the current international order. So we are, it's early days yet. Let's not rush to any conclusions. Okay. Thank you, Bilhar. You put a lot on the table. I appreciate you providing a broader context and talking about the changes to the strategic environment in the Middle East and the U.S., um, what, one of the things uh, in, a, in a high profile speech that you gave at the Air and Space Conference in Canberra, Australia, I'd encourage people to, to read that, where you talked about the recalibration underway of the terms of America's engagement with the world. And part of that was this offshore balancing that you're referring to. And the US expecting more, frankly, too, from partners and allies in terms of shouldering the burdens. Um, you also uh, talked about, um, and I'll turn to Dr. Ho Wenping, and China's in an awkward spot uh, in terms of its positioning uh, with respect to Ukraine and its strategic relationship with Russia. So I want to come back to uh, Dr. Ho Wenping to talk a little bit about your perspective on how countries in the region, in the Middle East, um, how they are responding to the war in Ukraine. How do you see that? But we should roll right into the issues that Bill Ahari put on the table. And that is 
the security dimensions, the diplomatic dimensions of China's growing engagement in the Middle East. Traditionally, as Bilahari suggested, China has been cautious to get involved in regional disputes as a major part of its approach to the region is to have good relations with every country in the region. And China has been reluctant to involve itself in difficult, contentious issues between countries, security or otherwise, that could ultimately negatively impact its relations with any one country in the Middle East. Um, nevertheless, it now has a military base in Djibouti. Um, there are increasing arms sales to the region, including drones. Um, they've uh, signaled interest in having a, a military facility in Abu Dhabi. Chinese leaders in the past have hinted that they're willing to play some sort of diplomatic role in the Middle East peace process, though we haven't seen anything yet, but they have hinted at that. Many argue that as China's economic interests in the region grow, naturally too, so will China's diplomatic and security interests in the region grow. Um, we heard in late April a speech at the Baal Forum by President Xi, President Xi Jinping, where he unveiled his global security initiative. Much of the content of that speech seemed uh, not to be new. We've heard many of the things in that speech, but uh, Chinese officials and state media discussed it as a new and defining vision for geopolitics and global security. Though there's a lot of interest in what this might be. President Xi appears to be putting forward a Chinese vision for the future of Asia and the global order. One, of course, that offers alternatives to US ideas of alliances and sanctions, liberal values and a rules-based international order. So in addition, I put a lot on your plate there, Dr. Ho Wenping, but we've got one hour to get through all these issues. In addition to your views <laughs> on how countries in the region are responding and China's positioning, how do you see China's growing security and diplomatic role and help us understand a little bit what this global security initiative is that President Xi has put forward. Okay, uh, thanks, Paul. Uh, first of all, it's a great pleasure to meet all of those uh, friends, old and new. And also, I think, uh, because given the time constraint, I know there's just one hour uh, our workshop and then almost half has gone. So I think uh, I'll just go to the points, to the points. First of all, I think, all those keywords we have been using right now is one is a balancing act, another is a hedging act. So no matter it's balancing or hedging, which means uh, those countries, the Middle East country and China, we don't want to be dragged in one, you know, uh, the camp or just uh, keep distance with another one. So we want to be, you know, independent and between. So why this, this kind of uh, position? Because first of all, I think for most of the Middle East countries, finally they find this war now happening in, uh, on the European continent rather than in the Middle East area. You know, during the past, we have seen too much trouble, too much conflicts always in this Middle East area. Yeah, Syria war and Iraqi war, so, so on and so forth, even those terrorist uh, activities also in that piece of land. But now the war now in European continent. So that's why I heard too much from African continent or Middle East friends, they're saying one word, very simple. They're saying, this is not our war this time, not our war. So why should we like uh, engage too much in this war? And this is number one reaction. And another reaction saying, okay, when you are mentioning this uh, justice things, those value things, okay, uh, UN Charter, sovereignty, in territory integrity, all those words. But some people naturally do a comparison, saying how to understand Iraqi war, Afghanistan war, all those wars before. Yeah, has been done also by those bombing, by the US, you know, by those powerful NATO. So they have been doing a lot of other bombing, similarly like this, now rushing has been done. So this is another, uh, by instinct, by instinct, Instinct, a lot of people, yeah, not those high table talking. This is a low table coming from the people on the street. Yeah, they were naturally asking for this kind of question. Uh, so I think uh, uh, this is number one. They think uh, this is not their war. 
And also, they don't think you are morally very high because you also have a double faces, even triple faces. Sometimes uh, this face, another time, another face uh, show up. So secondly, uh, this hedging and the balancing act is because they are not sure, even including China, not sure what, your, what kind of a world order will be yeah, after this war. Now this war seems well becoming prolonged, you know, uh, not a quick ended one. Yeah, things are ongoing. Uh, I also heard even uh, Ukraine side or the uh, NATO side something, oh, maybe 10 years war. So blah, blah, blah. Yeah, who knows? It's going to be prolonged war or just a quick ended war. Seems not that fast. Uh, so anyway, uh, with the long, you know, prolonged war, that means this struggling for another world order will be intense. And then it's not that easy to show up in a clear way. So that's why many of uh, those uh, uh, countries, developing countries at large, they don't want to repeat this Cold War, those scenario, saying either in my camp and then you are in another camp. So they don't want to repeat the new Cold War. So they want to take some time. Anyway, this balancing or hedging is take some time, like our ambassador just mentioned, uh, saying, take some time to look clear yeah, what's going to happen. So who is will take the upper hand? And then uh, until that time, yeah, it's not that late until that time to make a final decision. If I have been forced to take sides, so no need that hurry, no need hurry, because the best interest is to take care about your own citizens right now. You are not, are not some country, now immediately rush to the front line, and saying to show I'm here, I'm defending this, I'm defending that. Plus, sometimes you don't know the real reason yet. Yeah, lots of incidents happening, butcher, uh, you know, killing, uh, and then another killing come out, and then nobody come out with who is the real killer. Yeah, some blame this, some blame that. There's no independent investigation. Uh, anyway, so this is the, I think, uh, one is not clear about the board order, and then another is, thinking about like in the whole area. Now they're also short of uh, this kind of a strong sense of security. Yeah, not only uh, one or two countries, I think whole the area, because we have to bring in the background into our consideration. The background before the war, actually is already US gradually disengagement with this area. Withdraw the troops from Afghanistan and also we are withdraw from Iraqi also pretty soon. So it means, okay, I will go. I will go to Indo-Pacific, uh, the Asia will be the folks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. left behind. Yeah. Been, trying to do, been trying to do the pivot to the Indo-Pacific for quite some time. Talk a little bit, if you could, Wenping, about, yeah, about China. China sees its you know, security and diplomatic role in the Middle East, especially against the backdrop that well, Bill Hart talked about, where the U.S. is playing an offshore, wants to play an offshore balancing role, and as you said, wants to shift much of the priority to the, to, to the Asia Pacific. What is China's oh, yes. security and diplomatic role going forward? How do you see that? Yes, I agree. Uh, as our previous discussion said, before all the long time, we have been heard too much and the China's folks seems always on economic trade investment, like this One Belt, One Road initiative, also focus on trade investment with all those Middle East countries. Uh, we have been, uh, you know, stick to this non-interference policy also for a long, long time. Yeah, we want to keep distance away from the security issue. Mm. Plus, mm. Uh, like too many rivalry countries, uh, Iran, Saudi, uh, they are rivalry. So if we close with this country, and then it's not easy to deal with another country. So that's why yeah, this uh, distance away with those security issue has been yeah, a long, a long time there. But this little shift, I think, uh, not started from recently. Actually, can trace back all the way uh, to the Arab Spring. And also later on, uh, this Libya civil war. You know, after Libya civil war, and then you see our Djibouti, uh, this logistic military base, yeah, has been eventually set up. 
So which means now fully understand, uh, decision makers fully understand, now the economic issue, BRI, all those issues cannot be separated from those se security issues at all. Yeah, otherwise, yeah, all those BRI projects maybe will be wiped away uh, if the war's going on there. Yeah, even now, our some projects in Ukraine, uh, those BRI projects in Ukraine also has been bombed, uh, has been destroyed, you know, factories, yeah, some uh, uh, underground, those tubes. So anyhow, so those ideas, uh, I think, has been changed uh, given those events happening. And now gradually, but of course, we don't want to say like a few in all those uh, security vacuum now made by the U.S. Uh, so mm -hmm. now they withdraw. Uh, we immediately get in uh, to fill in the so-called uh, vacuum. Uh, that will be a silly way. Uh, like we all know the Afghanistan, that's a tome for those great powers, one by yeah. one, uh, through the union. So anyhow, this is a cautiously, cautiously yeah. moving forward, trying to develop yeah, some kind of a balancing, not balancing the way for mm -hmm. one hand, maintaining our security stability, yeah, our investment and our yeah. talk access with all those countries involved. And citizens, and citizens yes. as well, right? Chinese citizens. I know a number, several thousand, 30,000, I think, had to be evacuated from Libya. And that I think was- Yes, yes, that's problem. right. Yeah, 40,000. Thank 000. you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Ha. Amr, let me let me turn to you and ask you. Um, I know you can jump in on any of this, but I'm very interested mm -hmm. in your take on. You know, you mentioned, for example, that the Chinese position of neutrality, as it's perceived in the Middle East on Ukraine, was an attractive one for other countries. You mentioned the economics and trade, which is attractive. How do countries in the in in your view, countries in the region, is there a desire for China to play a greater diplomatic and security role in the region? especially as the United States moves to try to do offshore balancing as, as Bill Harry talked about? Yes, yes. I see this kind of, oh, sorry. Sorry, that was you can, you, 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 You're welcome to go ahead. No, 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 if uh, we follow Paul's uh, okay. order. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Amaro, thank you here. so much. Right, so so let me, let me, um, let me respond quickly by saying yes. Um, we we can classify Middle Eastern countries, Paul, in two groups. A group which has traditionally tried to engage China more with regard to Middle Eastern conflicts. This group has included countries like Algeria, Egypt, uh, pre-Arab Spring, uh, Libya, Syria, and so on and so forth. And this group still has two active uh, diplomatic powers in the Middle East, Algeria and Egypt, and they continue to push for greater Chinese engagement. A second group, which has been traditionally allied to the U.S., including Israel, including Saudi Arabia, including the United Arab Emirates, and what's new and what we're seeing, again, the backdrop of the Russian war on Ukraine, is that this group of traditional U.S. allies is also pushing for greater Chinese engagement. So by all means, Middle Eastern countries are not only looking for uh, more Chinese investment, more um, um, uh, of the Chinese activities related to the Belt uh, and Road Initiative, which my colleague has just referenced, not only Chinese, um, uh, greater Chinese economic cooperation, China building smart cities in, in, in Egypt, for example, the new administrative capital city, or other big projects in, in Saudi Arabia, in Algeria, in Morocco, you know, they would like to engage China more with regard to security issues. So from a Middle Eastern perspective, that is the attractiveness of the Chinese position of neutrality vis-a-vis -vis the perceived neutrality vis-a-vis -vis the Russian war on Ukraine, and again, the backdrop of the U.S. decreasing its role, and I wouldn't say retreating, decreasing its role, a greater push is coming out from the region to engage China more in security and in political issues. Now, keep in mind, Paul, that this region has had a history of managing great power competition since the 1950s and 1960s, if we take the after um, the second war, after the Great War time, this region knows its diplomacy it knows very well how to hedge um, uh, its bets. Its diplomacy knows very well how to engage great powers in their competition 
uh, over the natural resources, over oil, over strategic assets in the region. And they sometimes push for greater engagement. They pushed back in the 1950s and 1960s and 70s, the U.S. and Soviet Union for greater engagement in the region. And I, I would be interested, and of course, while keeping in mind we're only seeing the beginnings of it, it would be great to keep in mind analytically whether we will see whether we would be seeing a similar push from regional countries to involve China in Middle Eastern conflicts, not to replace the U.S. by China, but to get China to be part of the equation of the search for new security arrangements. Let me highlight two more um, additional points. It's important to keep in mind that there is a, a clear political background. As uh, Belahari was saying, Middle Eastern countries, autocratic governments in the region do not like to be lectured on human rights and do not like to be lectured in, on human rights, even in times of economic hardship. And economic hardship is increasing in the region uh, for different reasons. Uh, China seems like a safe bet. Uh, engaging China more does not bring in um, a greater engagement on human rights, does not bring in greater engagement on domestic politics. It's uh, primarily focused on economic and trade and maybe security arrangements. So this political background needs to be kept in mind. China is an ally to governments in the region, no matter what their uh, political nature is, autocratic or democratic, based on free and fair elections and rule of law or less so. Final point I would like to highlight um, um, as well, uh, and, and, and it's, it's key to keep in mind that while the U.S. perceived a decreased role in the region is um, uh, alarming for uh, a country like Israel, is alarming for Saudi Arabia, for the UAE, for Egypt, for the traditional allies, what is emerging in the region is not only bring in China or bring in Russia, um, and Belahari's point on the performance of the Russians in Ukraine needs to be kept in mind from a Middle Eastern perspective. What's emerging as well is an attempt to figure out regional security arrangements. The Abraham, uh, Abraham Accords uh, represent a step in this direction. The, a recent summit which happened in Israel, in, in, uh, in Najaf, in Arabic Naqab, did indicate that search in the region uh, from North Africa to the Levant to the Gulf to include Israel in emerging security arrangements, which are designed to fill the vacuum emerging due to the decreased U.S. role. Can China be a component? Uh, maybe. It's, it's a Middle Eastern wish. What will happen um, uh, needs, to be, needs to be seen. But let's just keep in mind that with a growing economic and trade and military ties, security can no longer and security arrangements can no longer be ignored. So I, I, I dare say that China is bound to have a greater role in the region in its security arrangements, which will go hand in hand with, with its increased economic, trade and strategic role and projection of soft power. Uh, a colleague of mine at Stanford just finished a great paper on the projection of Chinese soft power on the role of Chinese cultural centers in the region and how China is presenting itself as a power of um, uh, word peace, of neutrality, of non-alignment, and that appeals to many in the region. Thank you, Amr. I'm going to go, um, that was terrific, and I, I want to go back to uh, Bill Hari on some of this. Uh, you and, and Dr. He both talked about the reluctance of, of China to get involved on security issues. Um, hasn't been you know, great for countries in the region, uh, countries outside of the region to go in and get involved in security issues, hasn't turned out so well in many cases. China has learned many lessons, but what I hear Amr saying is um, there may be a demand element to this, kind of pulling China in. Um, and so even though they're reluctant, they may get pulled into some of these regional security arrangements. I wanna get your perspective on that, but also help us understand this uh, global security initiative President Xi uh, unveiled at the Boal Forum. How important is this in, in your view? And uh, does it have any bearing on the discussion we're having tonight? Well, let me answer your last part of your question first about the uh, new security interest, uh, for, um, initiative, right? Frankly, I don't know. It seems yeah. to be a lot of old wine in a new bottle, but it may be something more I don't know. But perhaps yeah. uh, Dr. Her should answer that, right? But let me answer your question. I think I'll make two points. Huh? It has struck me over the last, well, minus the last two years when I haven't been able to travel, right? Say the last seven uh, years or so before that, traveling around the Middle East, including Israel, 
that there is a lot of interest in China, which is not matched by a lot of knowledge about China. <laughs> mm. right? And that's true of Israel too, huh? although it's somewhat better in Israel than in uh, other Middle Eastern countries. A lot of interest, a lot of expectation, but not too much knowledge about China. Uh, and that's a factor to be brought in mind because they may want to bring China in, but do they know how to do it? They don't know how to deal with China. And more important, does China want to be brought in? In what way does China want to be brought in? I agree that it is probably inevitable as your economic and diplomatic footprint grows, China's economic and diplomatic footprint grows. Uh, a bigger political and security role uh, is probably inevitable. But what kind of political and security role? What is China prepared to, to stomach? What, how far is it prepared to go? Now, these are questions without answers, and I'm not sure even the Chinese know at this present. These are some things that can be confronted only when you have to confront them, when something mm. happens and you have to respond. Huh? Mm. Mm. The other point I want to make is that uh, I don't wish to sound condescending. Huh? In our part of the world, East Asia in particular, Southeast Asia, you can maintain stability through deterrence by signaling, by military exercises, by political signaling, by military signaling. But in the Middle East, things are much more zero-sum. Now and then you have to shed blood to maintain deterrence, to maintain stability. I hope some kind of regional security architecture that is inclusive, not just of the states of the region, but of the major powers, something that along the lines, I mean, it's not a perfect analogy of the East Asia Forum, which has ASEAN at its core, but it has all the major powers participating, right? I don't think that's possible in the Middle East at present, because as I told you, the, uh, the uh, issues are always much more zero sum uh, in, in, in the Middle East and usually end in blood, if not tears. <laughs> But I think that's the way to go. These are very tentative moves. The meeting in the Negev Desert recently, which uh, our colleague referred to, the, the, the overtures that Turkey is making to repair relationships, the not-so-secret secret talks between Iran and uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and all these things. But whether they will amount to something in the end, I don't know. Hmm. Now, come back to the Chinese point, huh? I think China has a role to play, but what that role will be is only going to be determined by events. Because I think even if you can penetrate to the deep inner councils of the Politburo Standing Committee, they may not themselves know right now. I think they want to play a role, but the parameters of that role, who knows? <laughs> mm. Mm. Thank you. I, I do uh, want to turn to Dr. Hu um, on this global security initiative. There's a lot of interest. Is there anything, is it important? I mean, is this something we should pay attention to? Is it, you know, a new vision for global security that is an alternative to what we're seeing uh, from the United States um, and others? Um, and does it apply to the Middle East? Yeah, of course, it's very important because Paul mentioned twice and then <laughs> until now, <laughs> not get the answer. So definitely important. But I think it's not saying this is the first thing from Xi Jinping. You know, even though uh, he made this in the board conference, actually, this is, uh, you know, I think all this idea has been repeatedly saying in at least uh, a couple of years. That is called general uh, security, uh, you know, the vision we also call in, in Chinese in called general, sustainable, uh, this uh, comprehensive uh, security view, uh, point of view. So we cannot divide it. We're using this kind of saying to apply, to analyze uh, hap what's happening in this uh, Ukraine crisis because those security concerns now has been separated, not put in, you know, in a comprehensive way. Uh, you know, any security only applied by one party and then definitely will lead to the end, you know, the end road, because mm -hmm. you haven't uh, taken into consideration about another parties 
their security concern. So that's this uh, idea used to analyze this Ukraine and the Russian, yeah, their security concern. Uh, for the Ukraine, they think they have to join the NATO and for the Russia, that's impossible. Yeah, we have to, uh, you know, defeat it, uh, this kind of move. And also this uh, comprehensive security uh, point of view also bring in the harmonious nature between human being and our earth. That is green, a uh, sustainable department. So we have been talking about this general security view also many years, I think, when we talk mm -hmm. about how to fight with this climate change, because that's ended in also disaster, like those extremely weather and extremely hot. And then, you know, the climate change caused a lot of it, also disaster. So that's another security. Yeah, not only war, uh, those war goes on, and also about nature. So that's a very big concept. A comprehensive point of view, and then there's a sustainable point of view, and uh, also in mm -hmm. bottom of the you know the 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 heart that is uh, security development is the final key for resolving all those security uh, uh, you know concern yeah mm -hmm. terrorist uh, you know issue and the extremist thoughts fundamental thinking so only the economic development is the general key. I think Foreign Minister Wang Yi yeah, mentioned this when he traveled the Middle East country. So he also put forward this idea. That's China's thinking. I always focus on economic, economic development because that goes to the root causes yeah, for all those troubles. Thank you very much. We've got just a few minutes left and I did uh, promise to go to some of the audience questions. And so I'm gonna turn to them one. We have one uh, that came in, uh, Amr. This one, I think, is to you. You mentioned the rise in, in food prices, wheat, um, as a result of the war in Ukraine. The war has also led to rising oil prices. What impact will the rise in oil prices have on Middle East geopolitics? And will oil producers get more leverage in their relations with China and the United States? This is a great question. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, clustering um, uh, the Middle East. So I always try to find clusters. So when you look at the impacts, economic impacts of the Russian war on Ukraine, uh, we can cluster the region in two groups. One is oil exporting countries, which are um, beneficiaries of, I mean, to put it in a crude manner, which are benefiting economically uh, from the crisis. Increased oil prices are creating um, better economic leverage, better trade leverage, better geopolitical leverage. I mean, Paul, you referenced the tensions between the U.S. on the one hand and Saudi and the U.E. on the other hand, and the ability of uh, Saudis and Emirati uh, officials to say no to American requests to increase oil production. And, and, and the, the diplomatic and uh, oil-related game, which is going on right now, um, should not be understood as a linear um, uh, game, which the U.S. dictates. It's actually everything else but that. So in a way, we have a, a first group, a first cluster of countries, which are uh, the oil-exporting countries benefiting from the crisis, and they are benefiting economically. And they are benefiting regionally in the sense of projecting their soft power once again in the region. So the UEE, Saudi Arabia, and uh, Qatar have just pledged uh, billions in economic and trade and financial assistance, economic and financial assistance to Egypt, for example. The second group uh, are, are um, uh, countries which are non-oil exporting, oil importing, uh, or oil non-exporting countries, which are approaching um, economic hardship are in tough economic times due to increased food prices, due to, due to high inflation rates, uh, due to um, um, their, their need for financial injections, not only from the Gulf, but also from the IMF and from uh, global uh, creditors in the US and Europe uh, primarily. This second group of countries is out there looking for economic assistance, for financial assistance, and they look to China as well. They're not, not only looking to the Gulf and not, not only looking to the global uh, creditors in the US and, and, and Europe, not only to the IMF, but they're looking um, to China. 
recent moves from the Egyptian government and visits between Egyptian and Chinese officials have indicated exactly this urge on the Egyptian side to bring China in economically as an assisting uh, power, not only as an investing power, but as a power of economic assistance. Now, does this impact uh, geopolitics um, in the region? Yes, of course, but here too, it's too early to say. We're approaching uh, tough times, food insecurity, rising inflation rates, rising food prices, again, in the backdrop of this clustering of the region, beneficiaries, net winners, and net losers. Thank you very much. We've got a question, one for Bill Ahari and then one for uh, Dr. Huda to close us out at the end. Bill Ahari, uh, this is an easy question for you. Uh, of course, I'm being facetious. This is a pretty big question. But given the situation in Ukraine, um, given the um, strikingly different uh, visions of, of global order that you see between the United States on one hand, Russia, China, and the other, and given the uh, divisions that seem to be breaking out over the Ukraine war, are we leading to a situation where the world will divide into blocks with China and Russia on one hand and those that um, follow their narrative and the United States, Europe, countries in Asia on the other hand? I think we should not exaggerate the prospect of that happening. The strategic competition between uh, U.S. and China is fundamentally different from the old strategic Cold War competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Why? Because the U.S. and the Soviet Union led two fundamentally different systems, connected only tangentially, and the competition was between systems. China and the U.S. and Russia and Europe and all of us, including Singapore, are part of one global system. All right? connected by supply chains of a scope, of a complexity, of a density never before seen in history, right? So we are competing, if there's a competition, it's a competition within a system. And that's fundamentally different from competition between systems. Now, all of us are invested to different degrees. For example, China is invested, far more invested in the current system than Russia, right? Uh, because China has been one of the principal beneficiaries of this system. Right? And I don't think uh, this system is going to bifurcate no matter what. All of us have certain reservations about the system, but we're all part of it whether we like it or not. So the short answer to that question is no, I don't think it's going to happen. Mm. Terrific. Thank you. Dr. Ho, we're going we're gonna to end with you. question about a recent article that you wrote. Uh, talking about uh, Saudi Arabia may begin to price oil exports using China's currency, the renminbi. Uh, the question here, do you how do you see the issue of the petro yuan, uh, as opposed to the petrodollar, playing out as China becomes increasingly engaged economically in the Middle East and as oil prices continue to rise? Should the U.S. be concerned about U.S. dollar dominance of the global petroleum market? Yeah, the short answer is U.S. no need to worry about that. No need, <laughs> because even though there is some trend uh, saying uh, now some yuan will be replaced the dollar in some certain part of this oil trade, those contracts, but it's just a minimal, a minimal. It's not a big deal at all. It will take a long, long time saying to uh, kick off the U.S. this dollar dominance, uh, this position. Uh, but uh, anyhow, we all know uh, this uh, Russian, Ukraine, this war, and eventually come up with this, uh, you know, financial sanction on Russia, and also uh, shift the system also has been cut off. So that, yeah, risk somehow this uh, importance of the dollar to some extent. Yeah, if you look about uh, our exchange rate between RMB, yuan, and dollar, yeah, you will see. Uh, just uh, two months ago, it's a six point three, you know, RMB uh, exchange for one dollar, but now it's six point seven, six point seven exchange for one dollar. So actually, I think. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, even India now is trying talking about, 
you know, how to trade with Russia, this oil in ruby and ruble, and uh, many other countries also thinking that way because those countries they rely on those uh, fewer those gas or oil from Russia because Russia has been cut off uh, this dollar trade, and then there's no other way to maintain those trade. So this is a very tricky issue. Uh, like uh, two sides in one coin. Uh, this one side of that coin is United States is doing the same, push other country to de-link with this dollar system. Yeah, by US itself. But on the other hand of this coin, it is now he want to get all those countries back uh, into this dollar dominated system. So those things are pushing the poor. Both has been done, I think, by United States itself. So the, the, I, I think, uh, yeah, the answer is uh, no need to worry for U.S. Uh, that that's just a trend. Uh, we see this is some uh, little trend, but uh, still long way to go. Thank you, Wenping. Well, we've hit our time. I think we could go on for some time. We I feel we've scratched the surface on some issues, but I want to thank uh, Amr Hamzawi uh, from the Carnegie Endowment, coming in from California, Bilahari Kozakin from here in Singapore. Thank you for joining us tonight. And Ho Wenping, thank you for joining us from Beijing and offering your insights and perspectives. And to everyone watching, thank you for spending your time with us. Thank you for asking questions. Hope you got a, most some of the questions answered. Uh, be sure to check out Carnegie China's website for more research and check out China in the World podcast as well on your podcast app of choice. App of choice. Uh, thank you again to our audience and our participants. Good night. <laughs>